What a day, what a day, what a day to be alive. If y'all are living and breathing today, thank God that he gave you another day on this beautiful earth. But before we get into Romans, because we're making headway in Romans 11, y'all gonna be proud of me, right? We ain't just focusing on one verse today. We getting through four, all right? So so we making progress. But I wanna tell y'all about this podcast I've been listening to because it sparked some things in my mind that actually kind of coincide with some of the things that Paul is talking about here. Um, Not only do I make podcasts, but I also love listening to them. I listen to them all day, every day. And the one that I've been listening to recently is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if y'all don't know, Mars Hill used to be this mega church, I believe out in Seattle, and it was led by Pastor Mark Driscoll. And the the podcast highlights the failures and the abuses and the sins and all that that led to a lot of the scandal and that led to uh, the church's downfall in 2015. And what stuck out to me listening to this podcast was not just all the stuff that involved their pastor, Mark Driscoll. Um, There's a lot of crazy stuff that we can't get into today. Um, But what struck out to me was how the, the leadership team, the elders, and even the congregation put their pastor, Mark Driscoll, on this pedestal as if he was above everyone else, as if he was this mediator between them and God. It was really interesting. And it made me think, because at first I was like, man, that, that's kind of an anomaly, right? But it made me think, and I, I see this in a lot of our churches today, where the pastors are seen as more spiritual as being more spirit-led, as hearing from God more, as having more knowledge than everyone else, and having a connection with God like no one else. It's really odd. Am I the only one? And when I see this, the only thing I can think is, no, 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 no. This is a mistake. Just because someone has a gift to teach or preach, or just because someone uh, had the, the guts and the trust in God at one point to start up a church and to go on this whole endeavor, just because someone has that particular gift, it, it does not mean that they have any more merit in the eyes of the church. It doesn't mean that they're any more spiritual or knowledgeable or anything like that. But what happens is, is when we put our our pastors on this pedestal and we kind of elevate them to this celebrity guru status, we, we start to take all of our theology and all of our ideas of relationship with God and we filter it all through this one pastor. And that's a mistake. We should not look only to our pastors to form our theology or to form our relationship with God, or to tell us what the Bible says, or to tell us how to think about the Bible, it should not be filtered through the pastor. And and here's why I say this. Because look, it's not like we're living in the first century AD. It's not like we are living in the situation like the people in Rome are, who Paul is writing to. We're not living in this situation where they had no New Testament. They had no knowledge or guidance on what to do with this news of Jesus Christ being the Lord and Savior. This was all new to them. 
And so that's why God appointed these apostles and the disciples that were entrusted by the Holy Spirit to give God's word to these New Testament people. But we don't live in that time anymore. We have access to hundreds of translations of the Bible. The Bible is no longer something where a select few people had access to it and actually knew how to read, where they could read and tell you about it. We all have access to God's word. And God didn't put people through the process of of publishing all these translations and doing all this hard work and making apps so that you could go online and get his word. He didn't do this whole process so we can just leave his word on the shelf. We have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to study and learn the scriptures that Jesus himself claimed to be God's revealed word. We have that obligation. In no way, no how, should the pastor be the one with all the knowledge in the church? This is something I think about all the time as I'm doing this podcast because I recognize that there may be some of you who learn a bunch from listening to this podcast, and that is amazing. I learn a bunch by listening to other podcasts and reading and all of this stuff, but I do not want you to just trust and believe and apply everything that I say as if it's the gospel. The the interpretations I have of scripture and the things that I'm learning, I'm sharing with you, but we should never put our full trust in a in a man or in a woman and say that everything that they say and everything that they teach and everything that they believe is 100% correct because I promise you At some point, whether it's already happened or where it will happen in the future, I guarantee you I will get something wrong. And it won't be because I'm trying to be malicious or because I'm trying to mislead, but it's because I'm human. And every single pastor that we know and love, that we listen to, that we've learned so much from, every single person that we learn from when it comes to Scripture, they either have been or will be or are wrong about something in the Bible. It's inevitable. We're human beings. But the reason why I point this out is because listening to this podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, you saw that 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 church put Mark Driscoll on this pedestal as if the words that he spoke were from God himself. And it led to a lot of spiritual abuse. And it led to a lot of... um deception and and pain and hurt for the people because they never challenged him. If they had questions, it wasn't a matter of going to ask and try and figure out what's right or wrong, even if he was right or wrong. It was, this is my church. I'm teaching all these people. And the only reason why they're getting the gospel is because of me. So you take what I say or you leave it. And we should never have that spirit when it comes to God's word. And so I want to challenge each and every one of you. Whether you are learning from this podcast or another podcast or your church or your pastor, you should be studying the scripture just as much, if not more, than we do. It is it is not our job to tell you what the Bible says. It's not our job to tell you what you should believe. God gave you a brain. He gave you a a willpower, and he gave you the Bible so you can experience and learn it for yourself. 
And I encourage each and every one of you to do that because when we know the scripture for ourselves, it makes it a lot easier for us to not fall into wrong thinking or for us to not fall into following a leader who is leading us down the wrong path. I want each and every one of you to know and grow and learn as much of God's word as you can because it empowers you. It enables you to think for yourself and it enables you to know what God wants for you in your life. But sadly, for many of us, we kind of are like the people in Hebrews 5. The writer of Hebrews says this about the people he's talking to. He says this in verse 12, and this is something that has stuck with me, and it encouraged me to take hold of my study of the Bible and my relationship with God. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So having the knowledge of God's word for ourselves allows us to discern the incorrect teachings and discern the good fruit from the bad. This is not to say that you can't learn anything new. This is not to say that you can never listen to someone or read someone's book and and gain insight. Actually, I think it is more helpful for us to read scholarship, to read commentaries from all different points of view, for us to get a better understanding of what the passage is saying. Because if you don't have biblical knowledge, if you don't have um, the contextual knowledge of what the writers are talking about or what's going on in the story, you can get an incorrect interpretation of the Bible. But your entire theology should not be given to you solely by your pastor. You should take responsibility for that. It will it will help you down the road in such a way that that you you honestly you you don't know until you know. It's one of those things where you don't know until you know. But most importantly, it allows us to know God's will for our behavior and our life. And I'm saying all of this to say that this is crucial for us to be able to live out what Paul ends up talking about in Romans chapter 11, verses 18 through 22, like we always do. Let's read through these verses, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. So Romans chapter 11, verses 18 through 22. We did cover 18 last week, but I'm bringing it in again because it gives us context that we need. Paul says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. All right, let's hop straight into this. Let's get through the first three verses, 18 through 20. Once again, Paul says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. 
That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So Paul here is reminding the Gentiles that although they were chosen to be grafted into this new tree of life, and we did equate this to a new tree of life. Go listen to the last podcast if you missed it. But Paul is saying, hey, uh, Gentiles, you, you guys have been chosen to be grafted into this new tree of life. So because of that, please, please, please do not get arrogant. Because remember that the branches that get grafted in, although those branches have the ability to produce good fruit and that's why they're being grafted in, they cannot actually grow the fruit or be sustained without the root that they're being grafted into. They cannot be sustained without the foundation. This goes back to what we were talking about, how a lot of modern day Christians will try and break themselves off from the body of Christ because of the bad things that have been done in the name of Christianity in the past. And we all acknowledge how evil that is and how wrong it is, but they'll try and break themselves off and say, nah, I just, I just love Jesus. I'm not about that whole Christianity thing. I just love Jesus. And Paul is basically saying, hey, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be grafted in and get all the nourishment that the foundation in the root gives you. And then at the same time, try and break yourself off from this tree because you don't necessarily like everything that the root in the foundation has done. You can't have it both ways. And so this should keep us in check when we're evaluating our own self-worth and importance. Can we actually survive without the root? This whole salvation thing, right? It, Paul's talking to these people about Jesus, about what it takes to have actual faith in following Christ and not following the law. Can we actually follow Jesus and get this salvation that he offers if we're not a part of the root? This should keep us in check. We should be evaluating our own importance in realizing that, hey, maybe we're not as important as we thought. And I bring this up because in this modern age, it's easy to get caught up in our own importance and how good and worthy we are because we become an idol in our own eyes if we're not careful. And I saw this commercial. I, I kid you not. I saw this crazy commercial. And look, I don't watch TV. I'm, I guess I'm one of them boring people. I don't watch TV. I really don't. I watch football. From time to time, I do like watching that. But I was watching football the other day, and this commercial popped up. Interrupted the game, but who cares? And I kid you not, it was this women's body wash commercial. I can't remember if it was Dove or Neutrogena or whatever. But they were pushing this whole idea of self-love. It The commercial is no longer about soap and making sure that you ain't funky and making sure that you clean. The commercial had nothing to do with soap. It had to do with um, a woman recognizing her own self-worth and they were pushing self-love. And the problem with the commercial is that at the end, they were so focused and they were hyping up this idea of this woman being so great in her own skin that they said at the end, Worship yourself and the world will follow. Now, let me be clear. There is absolutely nothing wrong with uh, telling a woman, hey, this is the body that God created for you. 
You don't have to try and live up to these other standards of beauty and all that that gets put forth because you're beautiful in the eyes of God. Like there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that. But I shouldn't have to explain how problematic and narcissistic the idea of worship yourself in the world will follow. That's a problematic message right there. But what's so fascinating to me is that line of messaging is not an aberration in our culture today. Unfortunately, it's it's pretty prevalent. That seems to be the cultural norm today is to worship yourself and everyone else will then see your self-worth. And if we allow ourselves to believe that messaging, then we can fall into the trap of thinking that the world revolves around us instead of us revolving around God's world. And when these priorities aren't in check, we start to worship the wrong thing. We seem to forget that, that we are made in God's image. That, that seems to get lost in translation. We, we seem to forget that we're made in God's image instead of God being made in our image, right? So if we are supposed to be God's image and God's imagers, then we have an inherent calling to act as such. And look, we all know it's wrong to worship idols, right? On this topic of worshiping things, we know it's wrong to worship idols. The most apparent story, at least in the Bible, is the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. Uh, And what's so interesting about that is Israel's action is that they are making an idol an attempt to worship an image of God. And and to me, this is why idol worshiping is so stupid. Like, can can we just be honest? Idol worshiping is so stupid because as humans who are made in the image of God, we make images of God and worship them. It doesn't make sense. That's what's so crazy about this whole story about the golden calf is these people didn't even realize that they were God's image. But they're making an image to try and portray God. That's the See, when we understand this, when we truly understand that people are made in the image of God, then we start to understand why things like murder and rape and pornography and all of these things are so wrong because when we when we inflict damage or pain or when we look at somebody lustfully we are degrading their status as God's image but when you see humanity for what it really is as images of God i'm not saying that we are God we are not even close but the closest thing on planet earth that we can even start to equate a quality of God with would be human beings and our intricacies and our ability to love and our resiliency. We can point out things about ourselves that can point to God. And that's in part what it means to be God's image. But what is so frustrating is we don't even understand our status in creation. Because if we did, we would not have to idolize things or other people. And if we understood our status as God's image and not God itself, then we would stop trying to worship ourselves 
as if we are worthy of worship. Think about this. Think about this. How many times are we told that you are worthy? You are more than enough. We we hear all of these things and they come off as just trying to motivate you. But the messaging that it's giving is so damaging because we are not. We are not worthy. I am not worthy of anything. The only thing I am worthy of is death and punishment. That's the only thing that any of us are worthy of. It's by the grace of God that we are even allowed to breathe another breath on this beautiful earth that he made. We are not worthy of anything. We are nowhere near enough. We don't have, we we can't even begin to scratch the surface of what it means to actually be enough for our own salvation. You're not worthy. You are not enough. And that might be an unpopular opinion, but what it means is that you cannot do it on your own. You need a savior who is strong enough and worthy enough to fill in all the countless gaps that you have. But the problem is, is that culture tells us to spend all of our time on focusing on self-love and self-help and self-care and focus on this and focus on that. And I'm not saying that taking time to uh, relax and look after your own mental health and your own body is bad. I'm not saying that. It's good that you do that. But the problem is, is that that has become the only way for us to be better. That has become the only way for us to feel worthy or feel like we are enough is taking all the time away from God and focusing it on ourselves. But what we what we soon start to find out is that we will be spending a lifetime and an eternity if we were able to. We would be spending all that time constantly trying to help ourselves and love ourselves and care for ourselves because we are a never-ending pit of pain and despair. That is what human nature produces when it's left to its own devices. And we need someone who is strong enough to overcome that. But all of our time gets allotted to attending to ourselves instead of attending to our creator. And what you spend time on determines what your priorities are. And I guarantee you, we all, including myself, spend more time doing things for ourselves and our own betterment than we do for God. I mean, if you think about it, a large majority of believers only follow Christ because of what they think he can do for them. I was guilty of this, and if I'm being 100% uncensored with you, there's still many times that that is how I approach Christ, and it is not right. And that is an area where I need to get better at, but I also think a lot of us do as well. We come to Jesus not because we recognize him as worthy of our submission and our, our worship, But a lot of us come to Jesus because of what the Bible says he can do for us. We got our priorities mixed up. But if we take all of that into account, then we can really start to understand what Paul is talking about here. The very fact that we are not enough 
and we are not worthy and that we have lifted ourselves up to this status that we should not be lifting ourselves up to, that's the very reason why we should not become arrogant because we can't survive without the root. We can't survive without Christ. We cannot make it. We need that foundation. But if we become arrogant and we start following a lot of these cultural mores that people say are okay, we're going to end up being the very arrogance that Paul warns the Roman people about. But it also goes into what Paul says for the rest of verse 20 into 21. Look at what he says. He says, look, they were broken off because of their unbelief. He's talking about the Jews here. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For a God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So once again, Paul be- Paul says, don't become arrogant. And so we ask why. And Paul says, because if you if God didn't spare the natural branches, if God didn't spare the Jews, the Israelites, his people, if God didn't spare them, what makes you think that he will spare you? What makes you think that? This is why Paul says, to not become proud, but fear. Why fear? What does it mean to fear God? This question used to bother me. And and to find comfort, I would listen to to pastors. I would just Google, what does it mean to fear God? You know, I'd pull it up on YouTube. And and the uh, the majority of pastors that I, I listened to, they would say, fearing God doesn't mean that you're scared or frightened or terrified. It just means that you respect God and you have reverence for him. And what's funny enough is I like that answer. It made me feel good. And correct me if I'm wrong, if y'all want to do the research and go back to one of my very first podcast. I think at some point I had said this in one of my first podcasts where I said, the fear of God doesn't mean that you're scared of God or that you're terrified. It just means that you respect God. You revere him. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm wrong and that these pastors I listened to were wrong. I've come to the conclusion that the idea that the fear of God is just simply respect for God is wrong. The first reason is if it was just simply about respect, then the biblical writers all the time when they mention the fear of the Lord and fearing God, they would have just said, respect God, obey him, right? <laughs> That's easy enough, obey God. But no, they use fear and they use fear for a reason. And this is something I've come to realize through a variety of passages. And we're going to go through some of them because um, this idea of fearing God, I think is so crucial to the first steps of us actually pursuing a relationship with Christ and actually doing what is necessary to live according to his will. It is so crucial. The first one is in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. And here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. They're being hypocritical regarding their own man-made traditions about washing hands and defiled hands and whatnot. And so Jesus is about to tell them some things. So we start off with uh, the Pharisees talking in verse 5, and it says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what stands out to me here is the fact that the Pharisees observed the law to a T. And they were fully convinced of their right standing with God. Like out of the whole community, if you ask anyone, the Pharisees were the one who were in right standing with God. They were doing it. They were killing the game. But look at what Jesus quoted from Isaiah. And look at what Jesus says. He says, they honor me with their lips, but in vain do they worship me. Now, it's easy to just come away from this and say, yeah, you know, they're just saying these things just to say it, and they're not really worshiping him. But this is implying that these people genuinely honored God with their words and prayers, and they even had a genuine worship. Why is this important? Because their act of worship shows that they genuinely believed in Yahweh enough to give him praise. If the Pharisees, look, here's the thing. If the Pharisees did not believe that the Torah was God's word, and they did not believe the things that the Torah said, for the most part, they wouldn't have been spending their days and weeks and months and years of their life worshiping Yahweh. They believed in Yahweh enough to worship him, actively worship him and give him praise. And they even honored him with their lips. Now, the crazy part is, is that even though they did all that, Jesus still says that their heart is still far from him. They wouldn't have made the cut. Even though it seems that not only on the outward appearance they were worshiping and honoring God, but it seems like in their own active choices, they were choosing to worship Yahweh and honor him with their lips, but their heart was not in the right place. Okay, this next one got me. This, this next verse here. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21 through 23, and this is Jesus talking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, my whole life, when I read this verse or heard it being preached, I always interpreted this as Jesus saying, look, there are people who are deliberately speaking lies in order to deceive, and they'll even say, Lord, Lord, to try and get you convinced, but they're really faking it, and I'm not going to embrace them. They're not getting into my kingdom. That's what I thought Jesus was saying here. But in my Bible study a few weeks ago, uh, my, my friend gave me his interpretation, which it blew my mind, but it wasn't anything like profound. It's just what the text says. I just never saw it. So he said this. He said, I, I don't think it's necessarily talking about people who are unbelievers and who are doing this maliciously. He said, I, it seems like the people that Jesus is talking about were completely convinced that they were leading, that they were living in a way that led to salvation. I mean, look what they do. Look what Jesus says that they do. They acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, as their Lord and Savior. They prophesy in his name. They are literally casting out demons in his name. 
and they're doing mighty works in Jesus's name. These are people who are literally performing miracles and casting out demons in the name of Jesus, giving Jesus the glory, healing people, delivering people, prophesying, preaching. They are doing all of this for Jesus. And yet Jesus says, y'all are not saved. There's still something that y'all are not doing. You are workers of lawlessness. And one thing that interested me was um, this point about demons, casting out demons. And this really sealed the deal for me understanding this as uh, these were believers that believed in Jesus, but they still, they, they were not doing the will of the Father in some way, shape, or form, and they didn't make the cut. And so when it comes to casting out demons, um, one might say, well, Oh, I mean, how do we know that, you know, followers of Christ were casting out demons? Couldn't it have just been like, you know, some demonic person or Satan doing that to try and convince people otherwise? Well, some people accuse Jesus of doing the same type of thing when he cast out demons. Jesus was accused of being possessed by a demon when he drove out demons. This happens in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And Jesus called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus questions their motives of claiming that he's a like demon-possessed, casting out demons by saying, you really think that Satan is going to cast out himself? You really think that demons are going to cast out other demons? Satan would not empower people to be able to cast out demons out of other people and do it giving Jesus all the glory. That would not be furthering Satan's plan. It would be furthering the kingdom of God. If Satan did that, and therefore Satan's house would be divided and it could not stand. So I point this out to show that those who were casting out demons that Jesus is talking about, it seems that these people were genuinely convinced that Jesus was the son of God and they were doing these things in Jesus name and they were convinced that they were in right standing with God, performing all these miracles, preaching and prophesying his name, casting out demons. But Jesus says, you did all of that stuff, and he can still use that to further his kingdom. But somewhere, whether it's deep in your heart or things you're doing in private, you are workers of lawlessness. And even though you're doing all these great miracles, empowered by the Spirit, it seems, in my name, it doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean that you're doing the will of the Father. So why do I say all this? I point all this out to show that we have a biblical basis to see that people can do amazing things in the name of Christ. They can worship him, acknowledge him as Lord, prophesy, share the gospel. They can do all of that and still not be saved. They still risk the chance of not being grafted in. And knowing this is the catalyst for the idea of the fear of God. If, if you are able to heal, deliver, preach to people, have mega churches where thousands of people watch every week and people are getting baptized and doing all of these things, if you're able to do all of that 
and still not be saved, then where does that put you? First person I think of is Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias had this huge ministry, international ministry. He was a, he was an apologist. He was the most eloquent speaker I've ever heard. He brought so many people to the faith. He was the first person when I had questions about the Bible and questions about God and questions about all these things when I was really starting to examine my faith a few years ago. He was the first person I heard. And his very work brought me to a relationship with Christ. It it brought me to a place where I can do this podcast. Ravi Zacharias' work did this for me. He... He did amazing things in the name of Jesus, and yet after he died, we found out that this guy was a disgusting human being filled with sin. He did so many evil, sexually explicit evil things with innocent people. He leveraged his ministry and his power and his influence to take advantage of women and to silence them. He lived a complete double life. He did all of the things that Jesus talked about, prophesying, preaching, doing miracles, all of these things. He brought so many people to Christ. And yet, Once all that was said and done, we find out through a majority of that ministry, this man was living a sinful double life and doing evil things. Evil things. So if you're able to have a knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and do all these miracles and do all these great things and deliver all these people in his name, and you can still have something wrong deep down, where you are not walking in the will of of God, where does that put us? Well, that should put us in a state of self-examination every single day to make sure that we are doing, as Jesus said, that we are doing the will of the Father. And how do we know what the will of the Father is? This goes back to the very thing that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast with knowing the scripture for yourself and not just trusting what a pastor tells you is important or doesn't tell you is important. If you know the scripture for yourself, you are able to know what the will of the Father is. And that's why it's important that we self-examine ourselves every single day to make sure that we are on the right track. But I think that we have allowed ourselves to believe that just because God is love, that he won't enact justice on us, that we can live this lukewarm Christian life and think we're okay, that, that, that we will go throughout our days loving to quote the verses like Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sounds great. It sounds easy. Following Christ in that sense sounds easy. But then on the other hand, we'll water down or completely ignore something like Matthew 16, where Jesus told his disciples that if you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or we'll even ignore the the passages like James in James chapter 2, where James says, yo, faith by itself, if it doesn't have the works to back it up, it's dead. It's dead. You, you, you can't just have this 
uh, faith in Christ and keep on living your own way and doing your own will and elevating yourself as this person worthy of praise. No, no, no. It starts with faith, but if you have that true faith, you are going to back it up with works and you are going to back it up with following the will of God. I think sometimes we forget what Jesus said about salvation. Jesus said about salvation, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You know, when Jesus said the gate is narrow and the way is hard, I think he actually meant it. But if we simply believe that acknowledging Jesus as Lord is enough, then Jesus must be wrong here. But I don't think he is. I think he is 100% correct. And we would be foolish to gloss over it. The, the way is hard that leads to life because we are called to a higher standard. We are called to literally take up our cross and die to ourselves, die to our own desires, our own passions, our own will, and lay that at the feet of God and say, not my will, but yours. And when you look at this on our everyday life, imagine right now, if you, if you got rid of and cut off all of the things that you desire to do that make you happy, and instead you filled that time with praying and reading your Bible. I'm not saying that God wants you to get rid of all the things that make you happy, but it's a thought experiment to think, wow, there are probably many things I do in my everyday life that are not really that important, that I could just give up and substitute that time with actually being in a relationship with God and reading his word. This implies dying to ourselves, and that's hard. But I think all of this, this acknowledging that salvation is hard. Not my words. D don't attack me. This is what Jesus said. He said, the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. It's not easy. It's not as simple as just saying, hey, Jesus, I love you and I'm sorry for the sins that I did. And then you go off and keep living your same old life. Jesus said, it's not easy. There's a lot of people who are going to go through the easy gate. <laughs> There's many of them, and it's going to lead to destruction. But if you want the gate that leads to life, it's not an easy one to get in. It's going to take a 180 in your life. It's going to take a concerted effort to follow me. And this is what the fear of God means. I'm truly convinced of it. It means that we recognize God's insane power and majesty and his ability, like Paul says in Romans 9, to do whatever he wants with the clay. Recognizing that Jesus rejected people who were preaching, healing, casting out demons, and doing mighty works because somewhere in their life, they were not doing the will of the Father recognizing how hard it is to get into this narrow gate that leads to life, not my words, but Jesus, recognizing how hard it is, recognizing 
that we stand in, in, in the judgment of a creator God who has the power to just strip the breath out of your lungs at any second if he so deems that that's what he wants to do. Recognizing that, that should instill some, some sort of fear, some sort of drive to examine ourselves every single day. Last note on the fear of God. That's Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We are to fear God because of his power and authority. And let me be clear. This is not talking about being scared like God is some abusive father that's just waiting for you to mess up so he can whip you all behind that. That's not what it is. It, it's, a, it's a healthy fear of recognizing that God not only has the power to give you life and, and, and salvation and abundance, he, he not only has the power to bring you in when you don't deserve it so you can feed off of the nourishing root of the foundation that he laid, but also recognizing that God has the power to destroy not only your body, but also your soul if you are not following his will. But let's not forget that God is love. God wants loving relationships with his creation. He loves you so much that he gave his only son, but he also loves you so much that he will not allow you to continue to sin without just punishment. And that's why we need to have that fear of God. It's it's a healthy fear. You know, there is such thing as healthy fear. So for instance, right, I know my family's history with diabetes. Therefore, I fear carrying that into my own life. I don't want it. And because of that fear, I'm taking the necessary steps to living a healthier life to avoid diabetes. Here's another example. I have seen how divorce has changed my life as a child, how it affected my parents, the the ripple effect that it had on my whole family dynamic. It was not fun. It was not good. And because of that, I fear the possibility of divorce in my own marriage. And I do not want that. So because of that fear, I do my best to be a husband that resembles Christ and how he loves the church. And my wife and I make constant efforts to improve our marriage every single day. Another example. I know the destruction of sin and evil. I know the ramifications of it, the eternal life separate from God. I also know that God is holy and just and he will bring to light my wrongdoings and he will judge me accordingly. And because of this, I fear living apart from Christ and I fear God's judgment. Therefore, I constantly examine myself to assure that I have salvation in Christ and that I am living in accordance with God's commands. This is a real fear, but it is a healthy fear that leads to a positive and good outcome. Paul calls the Roman people to acknowledge this fear because the reality of this situation is real. Because look, it's awesome that the Gentiles were grafted in, 
But as Paul points out, God has already shown that he is willing to remove anyone from the tree who is not producing fruit. And that person could be you if you are not constantly examining yourself to make sure you're producing the good fruit. Look what he says in verse 22, and we'll end with this. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So their position and our position in this new tree of life that God is constantly growing seems like Paul is saying it's conditional. Paul seems to make that pretty clear. And I know we're probably diving into the area of once saved, always saved, or if you're able to lose salvation, and I'm not trying to jump into all that right now, but this would be one of the texts that seems to support the idea that your position on this tree of life, your salvation status, can be lost. You can literally be cut off. Like Paul says, you can literally be cut off if you are not walking in accordance with God's will. And knowing this truth that Paul is sharing with the Roman people, this is the exact reason why Paul tells them to not be arrogant, to not be proud, but to fear. Constantly knowing that God has the power and that God is just and he will rightfully make the decision to keep you in the tree or to get you out of that tree if you are no longer producing good fruit. That is why you should fear. That's the essence of the fear of God. I know there's a lot more to be said with this. Uh, This episode has already gone long, and I really do want to get done with Romans 11. I feel like it's going to be a long, long time till we get there, but I appreciate y'all so much for listening. I hope y'all learned something, and I am excited to see y'all next week. Peace out.